Chapter thirty six of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter thirty six. John returns to business. Now November was upon us, and we had kept all Hallow Mass with roasting of skewered apples like so many shuttlecocks, and after that the day of forks, as became good Protestants with merry bonfires and burned batatas, and plenty of good feeding in honour of our religion. And then, while we were at wheat-sowing, another visitor arrived. This was Master Jeremy Stickles, who had been a good friend to me, as described before, in London, and had earned my mother's gratitude so far as ever he chose to have it. And he seemed inclined to have it all, for he made our farmhouse his headquarters, and kept us quite at his beck and call, going out at any time of the evening, and coming back at any time of the morning, and always expecting us to be ready, whether with horse, or man, or maiden, or fire, or provisions. We knew that he was employed somehow upon the service of the king, and had at different stations certain troopers and orderlies quite at his disposal. Also we knew that he never went out, nor even slept in his bedroom, without heavy firearms well loaded, and a sharp sword nigh his hand, and that he held a great commission under royal signet, requiring all good subjects, all officers of whatever degree, and especially justices of the peace, to aid him to the utmost with person, beast, and chattel, or to answer it at their peril. Now, Master Jeremy Stickles, of course, knowing well what women are, durst not open to any of them the nature of his instructions. But after a while, perceiving that I could be relied upon, and that it was a great discomfort not to have me with him, he took me aside in a lonely place, and told me nearly everything, having bound me first by oath not to impart to any one without his own permission, until all was over. But at this present time of writing, all is over long ago, I and forgotten too, I ween, except by those who suffered. Therefore may I tell the whole without any breach of confidence. Master Stickles was going forth upon his usual night journey, when he met me coming home, and I said something half in jest about his zeal and secrecy, upon which he looked all round the yard, and led me to an open space in the clover-field adjoining. "'John,' he said, "'you have some right to know the meaning of all this, being trusted as you were by the Lord Chief Justice. But he found you scarcely supple enough, neither gifted with due brains.' "'Thank God for that same,' I answered, while he tapped his head to signify his own much larger allowance. Then he made me bind myself, which in an evil hour I did, to retain his secret, and after that he went on solemnly and with much importance. There be some people fit to plot, and others to be plotted against, and others to unravel plots, which is the highest gift of all. This last hath fallen to my share, and a very thankless gift it is, although a rare and choice one. Much of peril, too, attends it, Daring courage and great coolness are as needful for the work as ready wit and spotless honour. Therefore, his majesty's advisers have chosen me for this high task, and they could not have chosen a better man. Although you have been in London, Jack, much longer than you wished it, you are wholly ignorant, of course, in matters of state and the public will. Well, said I, no doubt I am, and all the better for me. Although I heard a deal of them, for everybody was talking, and ready to come to blows, if only it could be done without danger. But one said this, and one said that, 
and they talked so much about Birmingham's and Tantivies and Whigs and Tories and Protestant flails and such like, that I was only too glad to have my glass and clink my spoon for answer. Right, John, thou art right as usual. Let the king go his own gate. He hath too many mistresses to ever be England's master. Nobody need fear him, for he is not like his father. He will have his own way, tis true, but without stopping other folk of theirs. And well he knows what women are, for he never asks them questions. Now, heard ye much in London town about the Duke of Monmouth? Not so very much, I answered. Not half so much as in Devonshire, only that he was a hearty man, and a very handsome one, and now is banished by the Tories, and most people wished he was coming back, instead of the Duke of York, who was trying boots in Scotland. Things are changed since you were in town. The Whigs are getting up again, through the folly of the Tories killing poor Lord Russell. And now this Master Sidney, if my lord condemns him, will make it worse again. There is much disaffection everywhere, and it must grow to an outbreak. The king hath many troops in London, and meaneth to bring more from Tangier, but he cannot command these country places, and the trained bands cannot help him much, even if they would. Now, do you understand me, John? In truth, not I. I see not what Tangier hath to do with Exmoor, nor the Duke of Monmouth with Jeremy Stickles. Thou great clod, put it the other way. Jeremy Stickles may have much to do about the Duke of Monmouth the Whigs having failed of exclusion, and having been punished bitterly for the blood they shed, are ripe for any violence. And the turn of the balance is now to them. Seesaw is the fashion of England always, and the Whigs will soon be the top sawyers. But, said I, still more confused, the King is the top sawyer, according to our proverb. How then can the Whigs be? Thou art a hopeless ass, John better to sow with a chestnut than to teach thee the constitution let it be so let it be i have seen a boy of five years old more apt at politics than thou nay look not offended lad it is my fault for being over deep to thee i should have considered thy intellect nay master jeremy make no apologies it is i that should excuse myself but god knows i have no politics "'Stick to that, my lad,' he answered. "'So shalt thou die easier. "'Now, in ten words, without parties or trying thy poor brain too much, "'I am here to watch the gathering of a secret plot, "'not so much against the king as against the due succession.' "'Now I understand at last, but Master Stickles, "'you might have said all that an hour ago almost.' "'It would have been better if I had to thee.' he replied with much compassion. Thy hat is nearly off thy head with the swelling of brain I have given thee. Blows, blows are thy business, Jack. There thou art in thine element, and haply this business will bring thee plenty even for thy great head to take. Now hearken to one who wishes thee well and plainly sees the end of it. Stick thou to the winning side, and have naught to do with the other one. That, said I, in great haste and hurry, is the very thing I want to do, if I only knew which was the winning side, for the sake of Lorna, that is to say, for the sake of my dear mothers and sisters and the farm. Ha! cried Jeremy Stickles, laughing at the redness of my face. Lorna, saidst thou. Now, what Lorna? Is it the name of a maiden, or a lighter love? 
"'Keep to your own business,' I answered, very proudly. "'Spy as much as e'er thou wilt, and use our house for doing it, without asking leave or telling. But if I ever find thee spying into my affairs, all the king's lifeguards in London and the dragoons thou bringest hither shall not save thee from my hand. Or oh, one finger is enough for thee.' Being carried beyond myself by his insolence about Lorna, I looked at Master Stickles so, and spake in such a voice, that all his daring courage and his spotless honour quailed within him, and he shrank, as if I would strike so small a man. Then I left him, and went to work at the sacks upon the corn-floor, to take my evil spirit from me before I should see mother. For, to tell the truth, now my strength was full, and troubles were gathering round me, and people took advantage so much of my easy temper, Sometimes when I was over-tried, a sudden heat ran over me, and a glowing of all my muscles, and a tingling for a mighty throw, such as my utmost self-command, and fear of hurting any one, could but ill refrain. Afterwards, I was always very sadly ashamed of myself, knowing how poor a thing bodily strength is, as compared with power of mind, and that it is a coward's part to misuse it upon weaker folk. For the present, there was a little breach between Master Stickles and me, for which I blamed myself very sorely. But though, in full memory of his kindness and faithfulness in London, I asked his pardon many times for my foolish anger with him, and offered to undergo any penalty he would lay upon me, he only said it was no matter, there was nothing to forgive. When people say that, the truth often is that they can forgive nothing. So for the present, a breach was made between Master Jeremy and myself, which to me seemed no great loss, inasmuch as it relieved me from any privity to his dealings, for which I had small liking. All I feared was lest I might, in any way, be ungrateful to him. But when he would have no more of me, what could I do to help it? However, in a few days' time I was of good service to him, as you shall see in its proper place. But now my own affairs were thrown into such disorder that I could think of nothing else, and had the greatest difficulty in hiding my uneasiness. For suddenly, without any warning, or a word of message, all my Lorna's signals ceased, which I had been accustomed to watch for daily, and as it were to feed upon them with a glowing heart. The first time I stood on the wooded crest, and found no change from yesterday, I could hardly believe my eyes, or thought at least that it must be some great mistake on the part of my love. However, even that oppressed me with a heavy heart, which grew heavier, as I found from day to day, no token. Three times I went, and waited long at the bottom of the valley, where now the stream was brown and angry with the rains of autumn, and the weeping trees hung leafless. But though I waited at every hour of day, and far into the night, no light footstep came to meet me, no sweet voice was in the air. All was lonely, drear, and drenched with sodden desolation. It seemed as if my love was dead, and the winds were at her funeral. Once I sought far up the valley, where I had never been before, even beyond the copse where Lorna had found and lost her brave young cousin. Following up the river channel, in shelter of the evening fog, I gained a corner within stone's throw of the last outlying cot. This was a gloomy, low, square house, without any light in the windows, roughly built of wood and stone, as I saw when I drew nearer. For knowing it to be Carver's dwelling, or at least suspecting so from some words of Lorna's, I was led by curiosity, and perhaps by jealousy, to have a closer look at it. Therefore I crept up the stream, losing half my sense of fear by reason of anxiety, and in truth there was not much to fear, the sky being now too dark for even a shooter of wild fowl to make good aim. 
and nothing else but guns could hurt me, as in the pride of my strength I thought, and in my skill of single stick. Nevertheless I went warily, being now almost among this nest of cockatrices. The back of Carver's house abutted on the waves of the rushing stream, and seeing a loophole, vacant for muskets, I looked in, but all was quiet. So far as I could judge by listening, there was no one now inside, and my heart for a moment leaped with joy, for I had feared to find Lorna there. Then I took a careful survey of the dwelling, and its windows and its door and aspect, as if I had been a robber meaning to make privy entrance. It was well for me that I did this, as you will find hereafter. Having impressed upon my mind, a slow but perhaps retentive mind, all the bearings of the place, and all its opportunities, and even the curve of the stream along it, and the bushes near the door, I was much inclined to go farther up and understand all the village. But a bar of red light across the river, some forty yards on above me, and crossing from the opposite side like a chain, prevented me. In that second house there was a gathering of loud and merry outlaws, making as much noise as if they had the law upon their side. Some, indeed, as I approached, were laying down both right and wrong, as purely and with as high a sense as if they knew the difference. Cold and troubled as I was, I could hardly keep from laughing. Before I betook myself home that night, and eased dear mother's heart so much, and made her pale face spread with smiles, I had resolved to penetrate Glen Doone from the upper end, and learn all about my Lorna. Not but what I might have entered from my unsuspected channel, as so often I had done, but that I saw fearful need for knowing something more than that. Here was every sort of trouble gathering upon me. Here was Jeremy Stickles stealing upon every one in the dark. Here was Uncle Reuben plotting Satan only could tell what. Here was a white night-capped man coming bodily from the grave. Here was my own sister Annie committed to a highwayman and mother in distraction. Most of all, here, there, and where was my Lorna stolen, dungeoned, perhaps outraged. It was no time for shilly-shally, for the balance of this and that, or for a man with blood and muscle to pat his nose and ponder. If I left my Lorna so, if I let those black-souled villains work their pleasure on my love, if the heart that clave to mine could find no vigour in it, then let maidens cease from men and rest their faith in tabby-cats. Rudely rolling these ideas in my heavy head and brain, I resolved to let the morrow put them into form and order, but not contradict them. And then, as my constitution willed, being like that of England, I slept, and there was no stopping me. End of chapter 36 Read by Landy in Sydney, Australia, September 2008